Welcome to the Kenosha City Church Podcast. Each one of us has good work to do. This message teaches through Nehemiah chapter 2, where you will learn how to live a life sent by God to do good work. Enjoy the message. We are in our second week of the good work, a study in Nehemiah. We're going to see God's call work in and through Nehemiah to change the world. But this isn't just an historical study on a character in the Bible. We are going to see the same God that worked through the calling of Nehemiah is working through his church today, is working through you. Not a single person is exempt. Now, how many of you have heard the phrase... God won't give you more than you can handle. Huh? How many of you heard that? How many of you have said that? I have, I think, right? God won't give you more than you can handle, or God won't give you a burden you can't bear. Is that true? Is, is, that, is, that, is that biblical? Well, let's answer that in just a moment. Some of you are like, oh, no, I don't know what the answer is. I've, I've said that. I've said it, too. Okay, we'll get to that in a second. But before I came to Kenosha, the ministry I was involved with was in the inner city in the west side of Chicago. I've mentioned this before. I was in college. I started an inner city program where we uh, would drive uh, students down for tutoring, for Bible studies, and sports. We were coaches. Uh, and so it was an undertaking that God really just laid on my heart and that we really just moved forward uh, in, into reaching the west side of Chicago. And again, I would find myself, uh, it wouldn't be uncommon hearing gunshots, seeing a fight, uh, seeing a drug deal. One time I got caught in the middle of a drug deal. That's a different story for a different day, right? I'm like, oh no, right? How was this kid that grew up literally a block away from the cornfields in Iowa, when the winds were out of the east, you would smell the cows, and that wasn't very nice, right? How was I in the west side of Chicago doing the Lord's work? But boy, God does some really funny things, doesn't he? But every week, I felt like it was in over my head. Every week, I, I, I felt like, am I, I asked the question, am I making a difference? Have you ever asked yourself that? Uh, even in the Christian life, am I making a difference? About three months in as a Bible study leader, I had a few new students show up. And I can tell there was some beef between my new students and the existing students. You could hear whispers from the new students and even my best behaved students, they were clenching their fist. Man, if this was a gas leak in a room, all it was gonna take was one match and it was gonna go boom. And something was said and the room went boom. One of the new kids decided to make fun of the existing kid's mom. And that was enough uh, for the Royal Rumble WWE style to happen. I was teaching on the love of God, but instead of the love of God happening in that room, uh, one kid got so angry, he got out of his folding chair, took the folding chair, and WWE style threw the folding chair, and it hit the new kid in the head. It was a Royal Rumble. I didn't know what to do except to end the Bible study there and send everybody home. That ride on the Metro that night is memorable. So I remember sitting on the upper deck of the Metro, laying my head against the window of the Metro and looking up into the heavens and asking God, God, why am I really making a difference? Let's fast forward 10 years later. I'm here in Kenosha as a youth pastor. Uh, my wife and I, we were down in Gurney Mills doing some shopping and I hear, Pastor Andy, Pastor Andy but it was from a student that wasn't one of my current students. And I said, yes, 
it was one of my students who is now a young adult. He said, Andy, I, I can't believe I'm seeing you up here. Yeah. He's like, I want to tell you all the things I learned from you. And they just started rattling off all these Bible lessons. I had even forgot I taught some of those things, right? And, then, and they said, oh, you taught me the Trinity. You taught me about Jesus. You taught me how, how to live for Jesus. And I want you to know where my buddies are at. Some of them, many of them went to college. They were the first ones and their whole family ever to go to college. And some of them went to ministry. And then my question was answered. Did I make a difference? I want you to know it's little about me did I make a difference. It's if God gives you a message, and he has, it's called his gospel, it's called his word, I want you to know it never returns void. For some it falls to the ground, yes, but you never know the depth of the impact you're going to make, and you may never know. And praise God, there's a number of times we do know because we can see the fruit instantly. You never know the depth of how God is going to use you. But in those moments, I felt like I was in over my head. In those moments, I felt like I was at a breaking point. I couldn't be a student and I couldn't do all this nerve-wracking Bible studies each week where it didn't seem like nothing was happening. So back to the question. Does God give you more than you can handle? Historically, people say, no, he won't. But I want to correct this. Can God give you more than you can handle? The answer is a resounding yes. Because our main point this morning, and we're going to see the book of Nehemiah, God will never give you a burden he can't bear. It's a, just, it's a quick little tweak uh, in, in the equation. You see, usually it's God won't give you a burden you can't bear. Or God won't give you something so much that, that you can't handle it. Listen, it's not about us. When God uses you, when God moves in and through you, I want you to know it's God moving through you. It's not about the burden that you put on your back. No, that will break you. God will never give you a burden that he can't bear. And that's really important as we look at Nehemiah chapter 2 this morning. So as we, I invite you to turn to Nehemiah, uh, the book of Nehemiah, as you're doing that right now, whether in your app or your Bible, um, let me give you a review. So go ahead and turn there now, Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah. You can go to the chapter one again, Nehemiah chapter one. And let me give you just a little review of the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a book that describes the return of exiles to help rebuild the city gates of Jerusalem. Nehemiah was informed by his brother that Jerusalem was in real, real trouble. And this was his response. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 3. They said to me, the remnant in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. They were feeling shame. Jerusalem's wall has been broken down and the gates have been burned. And when I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before God of the heavens. Israel was in exile. I mentioned this extensively last week. Israel was in exile due to their unfaithfulness to God as a nation. God's intention as Israel was, was to be a nation, a theocratic nation, where God was king and the people of God were to represent God and show the whole world who the one true God is. But what happened over the course of Israel's history is that instead of being in, in, in constant worship, they were inconsistent in worship. Instead of being obedient, there was a lot of disobedience. Instead of, instead of God being their one true God, they borrowed a lot of pagan practices. 
and ideas, and they mixed it into their theology, which created idolatry, which created sexual immorality. And the assumption was this, because they were the people of the promise, that they were going to be the recipients of the promise. But they weren't. They were sent to exile. I want you to know this. God keeps his promises. But it doesn't mean you can do whatever you want because you're the recipients of that promise. I want you to know a lot of people aren't enjoying the fruits of God's promise this morning because they're choosing disobedience. They're choosing to be diametrically opposed to the things of God. If you want to taste and see that God is good, you've got to draw near to God this morning. Does that make sense? Israel did their own thing to finally, God said, I have had enough. And he sent them into exile, first the northern kingdom. They were taken over by the Assyrians, but then the Assyrians were taken over uh, by the Babylonians. <laughs> uh, the Babylonians took over the southern part of Israel. So all of Israel had fallen. But then Babylon fell to the Assyrian Empire. And when the, Syrian, or when the Persian Empire, excuse me, and when the Persian Empire arose, King Cyrus looked at the decimation of, uh, of the lands and he said, you know what? I want to rebuild them and make it look great. And so what he said to the Jewish people was, you can go back home and rebuild your broken down homeland. Uh, Cyrus thought he had this great idea, but the thing I love about this is God was moving through even a secular, godless person to do the work of God. You know what I love about that? God can't be stopped. His promises are not void, amen? And so what we see uh, after the edict of Cyrus, he allowed two rounds of exiles to return. The first wave of Jewish exiles left Persia for Jerusalem in 538 BC. Anyone who wanted to go, they could go. Cyrus allowed the people of God to rebuild the temple that was destroyed uh, during the Babylonian captivity. This would be the second temple. Uh, and get this, Cyrus was even going to fund the rebuilding of the temple. And get this, Cyrus was going to return all the gold and silver of the temple that was plundered by Babylon. It says, you could take it back to the temple. They were being restored. A second round of exiles returned around 438 B.C. with the temple uh, now completed uh, Jewish judges and magistrates were allowed. Uh, it was beginning to feel like the days of old in Jerusalem. The, the hope was rising that Jerusalem was being restored. The only thing that needed to be fixed, and this was a big problem, was the city gates and the walls were still busted. You can build up everything great, but if your city walls and gates were busted, they could be plundered at any moment. People were still living in fear at night, sleeping with one eye open, uh, making sure that they would not be murdered or killed because anybody could raid the city. And so they realized, we need to rebuild the wall, we need to rebuild the gate. Now, time out. You might be thinking, okay, so What? History lesson, right? You remember being in school? They go through all like the president's, uh, you know, like cabinets of 1815. You're like, so what? What does this have to do with today? But I want you to know what we're reading in Nehemiah is so vitally important, not only for the history of Israel, but for you and I. Why? Because the return of exiles is important, not just for Israel, but you and I, because the people would need to return to the land of Israel for the, prophet, the prophetic words that were given previously, the prophecies of the Messiah to be fulfilled. If there is no land of Israel where the people of Israel come back, the people of God come back, I want you to know the prophecies where they say that a Savior would be born out of Bethlehem, 
that would not come to pass. Many prophecies would not come to pass in order for the prophecies of Israel, the Messiah, Christ's second coming in the end times, in order for these things to be fulfilled, the people needed to get back. And so God began to orchestrate that. But there's a problem. When God's plan moves forward, you better darn well believe the enemy is going to try to oppose that at any moment. And he will. He'll use godless people. He'll use people that are religious. He may even use you and I if we are being disconnected from the spirit and the word of God. The enemy is on the prowl to distract us and to divide and take us away from the plan of God. And that's exactly what we're going to see happen here in the text. Opposition arose during this second wave of exiles returning to Jerusalem. I'll put the words on the screen. Ezra 4, 6 says this. At the beginning of the reign of uh, Xerxes, some of your translations say something different, the people were already in the land, wrote an accusation against the residents of Judah and Jerusalem. So the exiles were coming back into Judah and Jerusalem, and the people of the land, they didn't like it. They didn't like what they were worshiping. They didn't believe in the one true God. They had different customs. And as we'll see later today, uh, their false accusations were most likely uh, from past animosity and bitterness. Nevertheless, these accusers wanted to see the forward movement of God stopped immediately. And in order to stop these people of God, the enemies of God realized they needed to resort to lies. And they did this by writing a letter of accusation filled with lies and doing this in view of disrupting the people of God. And their aim was to distribute this letter to the point to where it re is received by King Artaxerxes of Persia himself. So we see in Ezra 4.12, Let it be known to the king that the Jews have come from you, have returned to us at Jerusalem. And he's like, okay, yeah, we know that. They're rebuilding this rebellious and evil city, finishing its walls and repairing its foundations. Let it be known to the king that if the city is to be rebuilt and its walls are finished, they will not pay tribute. Uh, they will not pay duty or land tax. And the royal revenue will suffer. Ooh, this was juicy. Ooh, what they were trying to do is this, is they were, they were laying down charged words, these, this, this evil and rebellious city. This is what they're going to do. And people are like, oh, really? And they're seeing the people of God with the new filter. They're seeing the people of God with the new vision. They're seeing them in the vision and worldview of the enemy of God's contempt. The accusers presented a false narrative and they repeated it over and over and over again until it reached the king. They were the OGs of cancel culture. And this is how slander works. Accusations that serve as judge, jury, and executioner. Guilt that is assumed before one's innocence. And these accusations would reach Artaxerxes, the king, and the accuser slander persuaded Artaxerxes to write a decree to stop the people of God. We see this in Ezra 4.23. As soon as the text of King Artaxerxes' letter was read to Rehum and Shimshai, the scribe, and their colleagues, they immediately went to the Jews in Jerusalem and forcibly stopped them. They went there and by force 
stopped the people of God. Why? Because of a lie. The accusers place uh, they, they, their charge words to change the narrative. And the people of Israel's work was canceled. Let me say this about cancel culture today. It is a cancer in our society. Amen? I want you to know that living in a day where we're fearful of even mentioning the name of Jesus ought not to be. But I want you to know this. You may feel the burden of living out God's truth. You, it, it's not your truth, by the way. It is God's truth. Amen? You may feel the burden of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You may feel the burden of being obedient and taking a stand. But what I want you to know is this. God won't give you a burden he can't bear. Today, biblical truth is being canceled, it's being censored, it's being punished, and often through the lens of godless Marxist ideology. Ideology that we would have just been dumbfounded that it, it was being propagated even 10 years ago. Every Bible-believing Christian is a half-step away today from being canceled. And the enemy, Satan... This is what he wants you to do. He doesn't even, the enemy of, of, of the faith, which is Satan and his minions of demons, uh, he, he doesn't care if you don't give up your faith. Oh, that's, that's a cherry on the top of the cake. You deconstruct your faith and you're no longer a Christian. Like, yay, right? That's what he's doing, right? But you know what he would rather have? Cultural, comfortable Christians that just want to think about and sing about Jesus in theory. Oh, he'll call off the invasion if we make church anything but the gospel, right? Uh, if you make it anything, anything but the gospel. If you just, if, it just, if you make it about you, you make it about your preferences, you make it about your pet doctrine, you make it about anything, just don't make it about the gospel and I won't show up. That's what the enemy of God is saying. <laughs> we can't live that way. We must live in faith in Christ knowing that even when things seem hard around us, and what we're going to see in the book of Nehemiah is that the truth and power of God prevails. Amen? So cancer culture, we're going to have no part of that. A settling for an off-mission Christianity, a consumership Christianity, what's in it for me, I want it my way, Christian. We're going to have nothing of that. The church should not ever look like the tabloids in the supermarket lane or the United States Congress or a smoke-filled union hall. It's not about our consensus of what God's truth is. God's truth stands and speaks for itself, and it's up to us. Are we going to be obedient to it? So we see two periods of exiles return, and they've been stopped. And now we get to the book of Nehemiah. We see the aftermath of the canceled rebuilding project of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah is made aware of the condition of Jerusalem. It's in bad shape. And the promises of God seem so far away. And in his own power, they're done. They're done. God had a calling, though, over Nehemiah's life. And he had promises over the nation of Israel. Do you think they're done? Man, church, I want you to know this. The promises of God, even when your circumstances seem so off, is God done with you? Right? Until we fall over dead, God's not done. God will never give you a burden that you can't bear. So in order for Nehemiah to fulfill the call of God, and likewise for the fulfilling of God's calling to your life, 
that is to move the gospel forward in your life, we need to do these things with our burden. Number one, if you're taking notes, number one, burdens must be given to God first. You must give the burdens to God first. Nehemiah 1.4, when I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of heavens. Nehemiah heard of the broken down doors and the walls. Uh, he knew the forward progress was gone and it was going to be undone of any progress they had previously. He saw the brokenness, he heard of the brokenness of the city, he saw the brokenness of the people, and it broke him. Man, we need to have the spirit of Nehemiah, the sensitivity of his heart. When we see the brokenness of this world, when we see the brokenness of people that don't know Christ, when we think of the reality that if people die without Christ, they spend an eternity in hell forever, that should break us. Today, people are trying to spin that and say, oh, you're just guilt tripping me, or oh, you know, just, uh, you can't scare people. It's reality. If your child is standing in the middle of the road, and a Mack truck is going down the road. You're not going to be like, oh, that's just scare tactics. Let them learn, right? No, you would run in the middle of that road, and you would capture that child to be out of harm. How is hell any different? It's not. It's worse. God, break a heart, man. And it broke Nehemiah's, and he wept. That's Hebrew for ugly cry. And he did not mourn, though, as one who did not have hope. Oh, he was grief-stricken and he was mourning, but he did not mourn like those who did not have hope. I've heard this phrase, there's no wrong way to mourn. And I've heard this even, too, even with, not from any of the followers of Christ here, thank the Lord, right? But I've heard that even with my mom's passing two months ago. Oh, there's no wrong way to mourn, Andy, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yes, there is. Yes, there is. You see, we can't control what feelings we feel, but we have a responsibility to act obediently despite what we feel. Am I right? And so, yes, there is a wrong way to mourn, and that is me mourning or you mourning without hope. No matter what you're mourning, there is hope in Jesus Christ. And yet, people use that phrase to do whatever they want or act however they want. An ungodly response to grief will lead to ungodly behavior. And not so with Nehemiah. Nehemiah wept and he fell to his knees and he had hope because he went immediately and started talking to God. The Bible says for some time, we know that he was talking to God for four months. That is the definition of praying without ceasing. What is unceasing prayer? We, we, you hear a verse in the New Testament, pray without ceasing. Like I remember first hearing that prayer. I'm like, literally, I got it. okay. I'll see you like never because I'm going to be praying without ceasing. Dear Jesus, right? And then there's all your requests, everything. All right, amen. Wait, I can't cease. Dear Jesus, right? I, I thought this is an impossible, impossible thing. Like what in the world? Like what, what am I, how, how are you supposed to pray without ceasing? If you're honest, how many of you would say your prayer life's going really well right now? Right? I don't know how you're measuring it, but how would you answer that? You know, sometimes I hear like, oh, you know, it just, I don't know what to say, or oh, you know, it's just not how it should be, or ah, I just don't feel like I know how to pray. Do you know that prayer is just talking to God? 
Real prayer is simply talking to God. It's, it's not only when, <laughs> prayer isn't only when, you know, you get that nice little quiet moment at Starbucks and, and, you, and you put your, you, you know, you put your Bible just so nicely right on the table and then you put your prayer request on this table and then you're like, I gotta take a picture of this now. Oh wait, my coffee, I gotta put my coffee right next to the Bible. It's just so symmetrical. I'm gonna take a picture now and then I'm gonna write, I am spending time in prayer with the Lord. Oh, it's been a good morning praying, right? Look, you do you. You can do that if you want, right? I, I, that's fine. Uh, but what I want to tell you is that's not required to talk to God. I used to think that you had to pray for hours and then God would finally be pleased with my prayers. Well, God loves it. And there are moments in our life where we should spend extended moments in our prayers. But I want you to know God loves all your prayers, whether they're short whether they're long, whether there's something in between, whether they're spontaneous, thought out, or it's just a groan and a grunt. God loves it when you spend time with him and talk to him. And man, may we never try to live out our burden that he's given us by not going to him in prayer. Nehemiah knew that if he was gonna make a difference, he had to go to God in prayer first before he even planned. Prayer is necessary because it aligns your heart with his truth you ask for God's wisdom. You, you ask for God's power. You ask for God's, oh, this is very important, humility. Because we know without God, we're broken. So not only did Nehemiah pray, we see here uh, he fasted. He fasted uh, before the Lord. What, what is fasting, right? What, what is fasting? Fasting is the removal of something, typically all foods for a certain amount of time, uh, with, with the exception of water, don't do that. Um, uh, so all foods, some people, it's the removal of certain foods. We see that in Daniel. And then there's a more modern take on fasting. It's like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go a month without social media. I'm gonna go a month without, um, you name it, a number of your hobbies or whatever it is, right? And whenever you have the urge to do that something, you replace that with, with further dependence and, and prayer uh, and sensitivity to the Lord. But let's face it. If prayer, like, I don't know how to do it, right? Fasting is like, a, it is considered the Brussels sprouts of, of Christian disciplines. Oh, man, do I have to? I mean, look, I'm going to be honest. When I, 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 I don't go around saying I'm fasting right now, but when I have fasted before, right? I, even the White Castle looks good, all right? <laughs> it's something that we hear is good for us, but we really go for it. It's not a habit that a majority of Christians do on a regular basis. They're not required to do it, by the way, but a lot of Christians don't do it on a regular basis. However, we see Jesus, we see the disciples, we even see the early church. Uh, they utilize fasting uh, in such dynamic ways. But yet, through, between the years of 1861 and 1954, not a single book was written in English on fasting, almost 100 years. Why is that? Because fasting, I believe, has got, it's misunderstood, but also it gets a bad rap. Because people that uh, do exuberant things in the Lord, we have a fleshly tendency that we want everybody to see it, Right? Oh, I'm fasting right now. I'm on the day 14 of a fast. And look how miserable I look. But guess what? I'm better than you because you're not fasting right now, right? I, right? 
right? Somehow we turn these things that are meant to aid in our sensitivity to the Lord to some kind of pride moment. Like, let me share you how super spiritual I am. Let me tell you this. We've all been guilty of it. Uh, but it's not currency here at Kenosha City Church. Like, if you try to flaunt around, oh, I'm just so spiritual, I'm like, okay. All right? <laughs> and that's what I want you to do. When someone's like, oh, I'm just so spiritual, look at me, and I just, you need to understand, you need to be at my level, just go. Okay, right? <laughs> it, it, it doesn't work here. We're, we're not perfect people, but we're people being made new in Jesus Christ, right? And when, whenever something miraculous or awesome happens, it's God moving in and through you despite how broken we are. Fasting, it aids in our focus and need of repentance and dependence and worship and seeking out the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And Nehemiah, he wanted to fully depend on God in this moment. Everything was at stake for Israel in this moment. And God was calling him to this moment. And he was going all in. He wept, got on his knees, he prayed, he fasted before he stood up and did something. Church, we need to rediscover the desperation of prayer. Again, not to lord it over others, but rather so God can and will do the impossible through you. We have a prayer team at the end of this service. I, I, I would love it for a day where people are almost trampled because they're running because they want uh, to meet with the Lord and pray with others. We need to be desperate because we are nothing without him. A deferred prayer isn't prayer. You just haven't prayed about it yet. Pray. Go to God first with your burdens. Second thing we need to do with our burdens is we then need to make the big request. Burdens push one to make big requests. Nehemiah 1.11, at the time I was the king's cupbearer, Nehemiah 2.1, during the month of Nisan, not the car, Nisan is April, uh, during the month of Nisan, in the, 12th, uh, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when the wine was set before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I'd never been sad in his presence, so the king said to me, why do you look so sad when you aren't sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. And I was overwhelmed with fear. And he replied to the king, may the king live forever. Why should I not be sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Nehemiah was the cupbearer, that is the butler to the king. I talked a bit about that last week. Nehemiah was the cupbearer, which, which meant this. He had a secular job in the exile. He worked his way up to cupbearer, which is a very, very significant job. Specifically, when they're at a party and they're pouring the wine, here's the deal. Nehemiah, his first job as a cupbearer is to make sure the king doesn't get poisoned, right? So he would make sure and watch the drinks be poured. If there was ever a question, the king may ask the cupbearer to drink it first. So you know what? Uh, Nehemiah is going to make sure that guest list is rock solid because he's like, this could be my life, Right? Nehemiah had the trust of the king, and the king had the trust of Nehemiah. Nehemiah had fasted and he had prayed for four months, all the while being the cupbearer. But yet in this moment, the king could not, King Artaxerxes, could not dismiss the pain that he was seeing in Nehemiah's heart. And, and, and listen, for a cupbearer like Nehemiah... It was his job not to let his personal issues uh, get in the way of his professional issues. Uh, for Nehemiah, that meant he could get killed, all right? So he's like, okay, I got to keep the face on. I got I to gotta put on the game face, right? But finally, it, it, just, it just came to the surface. And King Artaxerxes, uh, you can see kind of the relationship they have where he's actually leaning in and caring uh, for Nehemiah. And he's like, why is your face so long? And Nehemiah's like, oh, crud. It's go time. The questions and the big ask 
that I have been thinking about for months. It's go time. Have you ever had a big decision you've ever had to make? For me, it was when I was going to ask Allison to, to marry me. And I remember just the thought of it. Your heart was fluttering. We were, we, we were down in downtown Chicago. We were by Buckingham Fountain. We went off to the, to the side of uh, the Buckingham Fountain. When they had the NASCAR race, I was like, as the cars were like racing and crashing, I'm like, look, Elias, I got engaged right there. So, uh, but uh, uh, I remember that moment where Allison was kind of looking at the skyline in, this, in Lake Michigan. Her back was kind of turned to me at one moment, and I thought, this is it, all right? <laughs> it's go time. It's turn or burn, right? <laughs> and so I got on one knee. I opened up the ring, and she said, yeah, all right? And she said, yeah. <laughs> and and it, was, it, was, it was done, right? We're walking down downtown Chicago. She's holding her hand like this. Everybody's seeing the bling, bling, <laughs> right? They knew that she was like, hey, did you just get engaged? I'm like, everybody knows. She's like, they're seeing the fresh ring, Andy, right? And so it was amazing. The big ask, it paid off. What is your big ask what is, what is that question that you have that you know could mean everything for Nehemiah? All was on the line. Nehemiah 2.4, then the king asked me, what's your request? So I prayed to the God of heavens and, and, and answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor with you, send me to Judah and to the city where my ancestors are buried that I might rebuild it. Nehemiah makes his big request. And notice, as he's making his big request, he's still talking to God. God, I'm making the big request. Help the words come out of my mouth, right? Oh, how many bad conversations could we avoid if we did this, the simultaneous talking and praying? Try it. God, I'm in a hard conversation right now. Help me. Help my words bring glory to you. So he makes his request. He marinates it in prayer. Nehemiah's request is this. Here it is. Everything on the line. Send me back to Judah that I may rebuild it. And then we see clarity of his ask. Nehemiah 2.6. The king with the queen seated beside him. I mean, imagine. He's at like a banquet table, right? Uh, he's in the middle of a party, right? Uh, the king and queen, they asked him, how long will your journey take and when will you return? So I gave him a definite time. He'd already been thinking about it. And it pleased the king to send me. I also said to the king, if it pleases the king, let me have letters written to the governors of the region of the west of the Euphrates River so that they will grant me safe passage until I reach Judah. And he's thinking ahead here. Nehemiah doesn't have a half-baked plan here. He realizes if I go to Judah and I say, oh yeah, I'm gonna go rebuild it. And these people, they get word of Artaxerxes' permission. They could kill him on the way. So I want letters uh, to the governors. Verse eight, the king granted my request for the gracious hand of my God was on me. I want you to not miss that line. If the gracious hand of God is on you, there is nothing too big God can't do in and through you. God has already given us his mission to go and make disciples until he returns. God has already given us his promises in scripture that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. He gives us a number of promises in scripture that, that we know that all things work together for the good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That is just a, a, a cross section of, of promises. There's hundreds of more. But we know that where we're living in obedience, the hand of God, he wants to move through you. 
Nehemiah prayed, he planned, and he took action. He took action. And so, we see here that Nehemiah asked for clarity. That Nehemiah had a very clear plan. It wasn't something willy-nilly. Nehemiah's ask was clear and it was defined. And that's why when we're in a tough situation, we shouldn't be just willy-nilly. We shouldn't just be like off the seat of our pants, right? Sometimes we have to make quick decisions, but we always need to be talking to God. A three-second prayer is better than a no-second prayer. Ask God for that wisdom. Often in life's most difficult situations, we don't ask for the right wisdom. Too often when people are in a hard situation, or too often when people want a certain situation, they ask for the wisdom they want to hear. They go shopping around for the wisdom. I don't want that. Don't want you. You'll, you'll confirm what I want already, right? Uh-huh, yeah, yeah. Come here. Give me some wisdom, right? No, no, no. That's not the wisdom you should, be, you should be looking for. We often need to hear wisdom, sometimes even the wisdom we don't want to hear. Wisdom. How often, too often, people seek out answers that they want to hear, whether it's on a big financial decision. They want to make decisions before they hear anything else or go before God. Uh, for instance, you know, people will, will make big decisions on their finances or on their relationships or spiritual decisions. Uh, one time I was listening to the Dave Ramsey show. You know, you know Dave Ramsey is the financial guru, better than I deserve, what's up, right? You know? you know Dave Ramsey, if you don't know him, he's a radio show host and talks about finances. And I'm going to tell you, I don't listen very often to it, but every show you typically have somebody call on and they did something dumb, Right? They did something that wasn't smart, but yet they call with complete confidence. You're like, oh, Dave, yeah, you know, uh, uh, yeah, I'm not being generous. I'm not giving to the church. I'm in debt, but but we're spending, and these are things we're spending with. He's like, whoa, 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 whoa. let me get get this straight here, all right? Uh, So so you're not being generous. You're not giving to your church, okay? You're you're, you're two years in, in debt of your full yearly income, and you're still spending money like you have a money tree in your backyard. The caller who was previously confident they respond with, uh, well, uh, yeah, uh, uh, well, yeah I, I guess I see what you're saying, right? We are so confident in dumb, right? It's because we want our own way. But if we want God to use us, it's not about our own way. It's about God's way, isn't it? And it grieves the I talk to other pastors about this too, just across the country. It grieves my heart and grieves their heart is when we see people make up spiritual decisions and they come to their spiritual leaders with their mind already made up instead of saying, help me through this. I'm going to be straight with you right now. The majority of people that show up with their mind made up and they're doing something dumb, their life ended up meeting disaster upon disaster upon disaster. If they only hit the pause button and say, let's pray about this. And listen, people will often say, well, I already prayed about it. That's just their get out of jail free card, right? <laughs> right? If you're going to pray about it, guess what's going to happen? You're going to seek out the wisdom of your spiritual leaders. You're going to seek out the spiritual wisdom of mentors. You're going to ultimately seek out the spiritual wisdom of God's word, right? But it breaks my heart. seeing so many people shipwrecked this morning because they didn't do that. They bought into their own spiritual smarts. I don't even want to buy into my spiritual smarts. And I'm your pastor, right? We are broken human beings that can be so easily led astray. That's why we need the spirit of God, right? That's why we need the church around us, right? Nehemiah got clarity from God. He started talking to the people around him. We'll see that in just a moment. And through God's wisdom came clarity. 
Here's an additional problem I see in the church today, in the churches today, just the church world. They like to do the things of God, right? They like to hear about it. They like to plan. But it never leaves the stage of planning. It's just a theory. God wants to break our hearts this morning to get on our knees and pray, uh, to, to ask the, the big requests so that we stand up and God moves through us and we go. That's the third thing we're supposed to do with our burdens. It needs to fuel one to action. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 11, after I arrived in Jerusalem, so now Nehemiah getting the okay uh, from the king, he's going to Jerusalem on a secret mission. All right? He's going to scout it out before he does his next thing that we'll see here. So after I arrived in Jerusalem, I'd been there for three days. I got up at, at night and took a few men with me. I didn't tell anyone what my God had laid on my heart to do uh, for Jerusalem. The only animal I took was the one I was riding. And I went out at night through the valley gate to the serpent's well to the dung gate. And I expected the walls of Jerusalem that had been broken down and its gates had been destroyed by fire. So yes, he's, he's confirming the condition, yes. But he's also scouting out who am I going to need to ask to help. So this burden fueled Nehemiah to action. And no, no more waiting asking, now no more waiting going. When I was in college and leading the inner city ministry, uh, part of my task was to recruit people through the week, to recruit people to be tutors or Bible study leaders or coaches. And I remember this, this one girl, she wanted to join us uh, for one of our programs one evening. And when the program was done, I said, what did you think? And they said, well, I, I'm, I'm still seeking God. I'm praying to God, and I'm thinking about it. I just want to make sure whatever campus ministry I'm involved with, that God's going to use me. I thought, well, that's cool. Sure. No pressure. A couple weeks go by. They're like, hey, what, what do you think? Still praying about it. Still thinking about it. Still seeing. Okay, that's cool. Month comes by. Hey, what do you think? I'm still praying about it. I'm still thinking about it. I'm still trying to figure it out. Okay, that's cool. Guess what? The whole semester went by. Hey, what'd you end up doing? Oh, I'm still praying about it. I'm still thinking about it. This person graduated all of college and they were still praying about it and they were still thinking about it and still contemplating, hey, college is done, right? That's what happens to us often. We love the Christian culture. We love to think about it. Oh, we, oh that's beautiful when people come to Jesus or oh, that's beautiful when, when chains are broken or that's beautiful that people pray. But some of us are just being spectators. Some of us are just praying about it and thinking, okay, God wants you to go before him so that he, moves in and through you and does work through you to see his kingdom move ahead of you. Does that make sense? Nehemiah prayed, he planned, and he took action. He took his personal field trip to Jerusalem to see it for himself. This leads us to the fourth thing that he's going to do with his burden, though. He moved him to action, but burdens need to inspire others to help. Nehemiah 2.16 the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, for I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, and the officials, or the rest of those who would be doing the work. So I said to them, you see the trouble that we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned. Come, let's rebuild Jerusalem's wall, so we will no longer be a disgrace. And I told them how the gracious hand of God had been upon me, and what the king said to me, and they were riled up. They said, let's start rebuilding. And their hands were strengthened to do this 
good work. Oh, Kenosha City Church, let's put this an application into our life. We have a city to reach. We have neighbors and co-workers and family who are far from Christ. We have people that are drowning in addiction. We have people that are, that are drowning with hopelessness. We have people that are buying into ideologies that are diametrically opposed to God. And here we sit this morning. Here we, in theory, understand the reality of who God is and what he wants to do in and through you. But this is our time for a broken heart. This is our time to get on our knees. This is our time to say, God, you have given us the plan to go, to go where our spheres of influence are and God this is our time together as Kenosha City Church this isn't something that just pastors do this isn't something that just elders or high capacity volunteers do I'm looking at every single person in this room and God is saying can I use you can I move in and through you what are you going to do your hands and feet it might not be something big where you have a microphone it's just it's gonna be something big behind a camera it's gonna be something big uh, in the lobby it's gonna be something big in the next generation of our kids I want you to know this our culture wants our kids if you haven't seen the crazy opposition to even the movie on child trafficking i don't know what will wake us up our society wants to indoctrinate our kids and rob them of their innocence and as a church we cannot sit down and say well, you know that's somebody else's job. That is how you're going to lose your children, your grandchildren, a nation. And Kenosha City Church, we will not play church. Kenosha City Church, we will be God's people to see the city one for Jesus Christ. If nobody else does it, that's fine. I hope other people do it because we can't do it alone. But we got to reach our neighbors, our coworkers, this city. Amen. And that means, and that means volunteering in city kids that means volunteering at revolution that means volunteering in the host team that means manning a camera where people thousands of people see this message where some of our videos are now approaching one million views i want to pay oh you're gonna get mad oh we have a cameraman back there his name is josiah everybody say hi josiah on camera right right josiah uh, has, been, has been faithful, he's getting ready to move, they're gonna have a big party for him because he's getting to move, because he's leaving right, all right? Thousands of people have seen the message of the gospel because Josiah decided to put a headset on and sit behind a camera so that people can see it. Some people think, not here, some people might think, oh, that's just beneath me. That's not the attitude God wants you to have. God wants you to say, here I am, send me, here I am, send me. I don't even know where I'm at now, all right? Let's give it up for Josiah. Church, we have a great work ahead. We have a great work ahead. But it's all hands on deck with your time that is coming together, that is being community together. We here, we are city groups. We are our volunteer teams, our talents, that is, serving where there is need, and our treasure. Yes, for our regular tenders, that means giving financially to Kenosha City Church so that we will win the city. We are serious about it, church. We're not going to tip Jesus, we're going to tithe Jesus, right? And when we do that together, we won't just meet our bills. We will expand and fund and fuel vision. 
It's what we're made for. You're made to know God, to do the work of God, and to be with him forever. Everything else is just a cheap substitute. But know this. When we're serious about this, I'm going to be honest. If you're being serious in your heart, the enemy doesn't like it. He wants to shut this place down. He wants to shut you down. He wants to split your families up. He wants to destroy you. And that's enough to say, okay, I give up. I just want to live a common life, so I don't want any of that to happen. Listen, here's the deal. But when you're obedient to the Father and you're filled with the Spirit, that burden he gives you, he's able to bear it. And nothing can be used against you from the enemy. Burdens inspire others to help. But lastly, burdens awaken opposition. Nehemiah 2.10. When Sambalat the Hornonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, these guys have interesting names, uh, official heard that someone had come to pursue the prosperity of the Israelites, they were greatly displeased. Nehemiah 2.19. When Sambalat the Hornite the Tobiah, the Ammonite, and now Geshem, the Arab, heard about this. Now there's a third guy. They mocked and despised us and said, what is this thing you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Oh, they must have heard years ago about the accusations. Oh, they never died because people wanted to lean in and listen, and they're like, we'll resurrect these from the dead. This group of people had a long, deep bitterness towards the people of God, the, the, the Ammonites and the Moabites. Uh, Sam Ballot, the, the, the Hornite, he, he's most, most likely a Moabite. And they were adversarial to the people of God, and they were really upset hearing about the plans of Nehemiah. So they went about and they mocked and they despised the people of God, trying to create fear in them. And we're going to see in the weeks ahead the tactics they are ready to go about to stop the work of God. Their aim is to wear the people of God down. Do you know that's the enemy's tactic to you? He wants to wear you down to where you're like, I, I, okay, whatever, right? That is not where God's people are supposed to be. Okay, whatever. Listen, if you remember the burden that God gives you, he's able to bear you can go way beyond you ever thought you were able to be capable of doing. I love Nehemiah's reply. Sam Bellet and Tobiah and now Geshem, they're, they're, they're taunting. This is not what Nehemiah did. Oh, did you hear what they said? I can't believe they said that about us. That's not true. What should we do? Well, you know, uh, there's a bunch of people lining up and, and uh, you know, you should just talk to them. No, he didn't even answer the people that were going against the things of the Lord. No, rather, he talked about God and he kept talking about God. And what we see is this. He gave them this reply. The God of the heavens is the one who will grant us success. Will his servants, will we start building? When we start building, you have no share or right, or historic claim in Jerusalem. Nehemiah did not flinch. He didn't answer the lies. He didn't speak to the lies. He began to speak to the truth of God. And he said, we're going to build this thing. 
And the thing that we build, your claims, your accusations, your lies have no claim on this. Oh, you need to hear that, people of God. I want you to know this. The promises of God, being a son and daughter of the king, whatever the enemy tries to hurl, he is called the father of lies in the Bible. Whatever he throws at you, it has no claim over your identity and who you are. If we can peel that off, we can begin to live a life of increased faith and you'll see the dynamic of God move through you perhaps like you've never had before. Because God will never give you a burden that you cannot bear. So take home. What burden needs to be given to God this morning? What burden do you need to have? What needs to break your heart? Where do you need to get involved in the kingdom? And where and who is your one? Who is your one that is in your sphere of influence that you're going to start praying for, caring for, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ? For some of you, you might lead someone to Christ this week. For others, you're going to invite someone to church. But Christianity is not a spectator sport. It is all hands on deck. And when we do that, we're allowed to say, wow, because of what God has done collectively through his church. Because it's not about the burden that you can bear. No, God will never give you a burden that he can't bear. So, Father, we love you and we thank you for who you are and what you've done. Thank you that we get to see the example of Nehemiah to stand up courageously and boldly to the plans of God and allow him to inspire others. But Lord, I pray you inspire us this morning to be the people of God in Kenosha, in our cities, in Racine, in Mount Pleasant, and in Illinois, wherever we're at, God, our cities, our sphere of influence. God, I pray that it would be different because of the witness and because of what your work that you're going to do in and through God's people. God, I pray for this church. I pray, God, it's an all-hands-on-deck thing. I thank you so much for everybody that is serving, God. But, Lord, I pray you'd rise up even those that have been like, okay, now's my time to serve. God, I pray that we would reach the next generation now. God, I pray that we would deploy people locally and internationally to spread your gospel. Lord, we, pr- we thank you ahead what you're going to do. So, God, I pray that you move in hearts. As we continue to pray, I want to specifically talk to anybody in this room. Do you know you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you know you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Today, if you were to stand before Almighty God and Jesus said, why should I let you into my kingdom? Do you know what you would say? If you're uncertain or you know that you don't have a relationship with Jesus, today, right now, you can make certain of it. And this is how you make certain of it. It's saying, Jesus, I realized I've done wrong. I've realized I have sinned. I need you. I need you uh, as Savior. I realize there's nothing I can do to get to you. I need you to save me and forgive me my sins. Is that your heart this morning? Is that your heart this morning? If today you know you need to get right with Jesus, this is how you get right with him. It's acknowledging Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. It's confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believing in your heart that God rose him from the dead. See, Jesus died on the cross to save you from your sins. He rose from the dead three days later and our response is to place our full faith and trust in him alone. Will you do that right now? Will you get right with Jesus? With every head's bowed and eyes closed, if this morning you want to get right with Jesus, this morning you want to place your faith and trust in him alone, will you just look up at me and make eye contact right now? Just look up at me, make eye contact if that's you. You want to place your faith and trust in Jesus. If that's you this morning, like, yep, 
Today's the day. I want to place my faith and trust in him alone. Thank you. Anybody else? So Lord Jesus, I pray for those that are saying yes to you this morning. Lord, I pray that their faith would grow and that they would know they are now sons and daughters of the King. Lord Jesus, I pray for those this morning where their hearts become callous to the things of the world. God, break them. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode. If you would like to know more about Kenosha City Church, then check us out online at kenosha.church or on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Kenosha City Church. Lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to follow us so that you never have to miss an episode. At Kenosha City Church, we are not perfect people, but real people being made new through Jesus.